Bible-believing evangelical churches, very little emphasis on world missions to the extent that there should be. I'm a very good friend of Jerry Rankin, who was the head of the IMB, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. I met Jerry multiple times. Right, yeah, and just a wonderful brother. Yeah. And uh, and I was saying to him, Jerry, I said, so awesome that you guys have 6,000 missionaries with the IMB. And he said, George, that's paltry. He said, we have 40,000 Southern Baptist churches in North America. If every church would just give one son or daughter to the mission field, we'd have 40,000 missionaries, not six. Wow. Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler, a pleasure friend to have you stop by. One of my longtime friends, dear friends, is Ronnie Stevens, formerly pastor of First Evangelical Church. He's now associate pastor at Harvest Church in Memphis. Love Ronnie Stevens. What a great guy. One of the things I enjoy about Ronnie is some of the people he has introduced me to over the years that we have introduced you, our Bot Radio Network listeners, to because they are some great guests. He knows some wonderful people. And today's no exception with Dr. George Murray. And we're going to find out about George and his backstory. But first, I believe you said something about radio was in your background, George. Yes, absolutely. I grew up in a home that had a radio studio in it. And my father and mother had a daily radio broadcast. This was in Collingswood, New Jersey. And then they continued that when we moved to Pennsylvania. And actually, after my father died, he was awarded the Milestone Award by the National Religious Broadcasters for 50 straight years of a daily radio broadcast. Oh, George, what an incredible story. Now, tell me your dad's name. Jack Murray. Jack Murray. Yes, he was a pastor in Philadelphia, and then he became a traveling evangelist. Now, when was it that he received that Hall of Fame award? Oh, man, I'd have to think back uh, to the exact time. I don't remember, but it's it's been probably 20 years ago. Okay. Well, Dick Bott, who is the founder and president, his son now, Rich Bott, is running Bott Radio Network, but he also is in the Hall of Fame. And of course, Bott Radio Network has been on the air now for 61 years, getting the word of God into the people of God, mm. just like your mom and dad did so faithfully. Right. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it was beautiful. Uh, they had five kids and they would drag us down to the studio in the morning and make us answer questions and sing songs. And uh, so I just grew up with radio. Did you think you might get into broadcasting at one time? Uh, never really thought of that as a profession, but my wife and I were missionaries in Northeast Italy and uh, we were planting churches. And believe it or not, to do that, we started our own radio station in Northeast Italy. Uh, it went from eight hours a day to 24 hours a day. And God used that to touch the hearts of many people. It was Christian radio, but in a different way. It wasn't radio for Christians. It was radio run by Christians to reach lost people because there were no Christians in that area. And so we shared the gospel on the radio and we eventually planted a church and 70% of the people in that congregation who came to Christ first had contact with us through the radio. Oh, I love that, George. Yeah. This is a great story. Yeah. You know, I formerly uh, served with Transworld Radio yes. Ministries back in the mid-90s. We were living on the island of Guam, broadcasting Northeast and Southeast Asia. And I know from uh, Tangier, uh, Morocco, which was where the station first started, with Dr. Paul Freed back in the late 1950s, a surplus military transmitter <laughs> was broadcasting across the Straits of Gibraltar and into Spain to take the gospel. And uh, then the Lord opened up an opportunity to move to uh, Monte Carlo. Exactly. 
I've been to their studios in Monte Carlo. I have. Oh, oh, I love that. Well, there's so much we can talk about. You have served as the chancellor of Columbia International University from 2007 to 2017. Previously, you served as the president of the college from 2000 to 2007. You also served as the executive director for the Evangelical Alliance Mission Team. And I always enjoyed, as a young Bible college student here at Mid-South Bible College, having team missionaries, you know, come by and and share in chapel with us. That was always a joy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I love being the the director of team and uh, just working with all the hidden heroes that are serving the Lord around the world. Oh, it's so beautiful. And really the connection of how that organization started. There's some ties to the late Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China Inland Mission, which I think is pretty pretty neat to talk about, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And not only that, uh, (laughs) your your resume when it comes to serving the Lord in missions. For 10 years, you served as general director of Bible Christian Union, a mission agency that actually merged with team back in 94, was it? That's right. 1994. Now, you and your wife, Annette, you have four children. Of course, they're growing. You enjoy being a grandparent now. So how did you meet Annette and where did you meet Annette? I know she also attended Columbia. That's right. Were you students together? Yeah, we were students together. Um, I was two years ahead of her. She came as a freshman when I was a junior. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and she is from Kennewick, Washington State, which is the eastern part of Washington. She came all the way across the country to go to Columbia Bible College. We met when she was a freshman. I was so impressed with her testimony and her love for the Lord. I'll, I'll tell you just real quick. We The first time I called her up to go out on a date, we didn't know each other at all, and she agreed, and we were walking across the campus on our way to where we were going to eat, and she stopped me on the sidewalk, and she said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She said, do you believe the hand of God is on you for missionary service, and you're planning to spend your life as a missionary? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, because that's why I'm here studying God's Word. And she said, oh, I'm so glad to hear that, because that's what I, I know God wants me to do that. And if that's not what God wants you to do, I don't want to get involved. Oh, George, <laughs> what a great story there. And for a younger generation to listen, to kind of lean into that, you right. know, and Absolutely. realizing how God calls you together to serve Him, but individually first. I mentioned Transworld Radio. God had given me a piece about going and serving, but He hadn't given the same piece to my wife. Right. So I knew He hadn't called me until He called her, and we prayed about it. And a couple of years later, we saw God just do a great work. And it wasn't that she was less spiritual. It probably, maybe it was, I was probably the less spiritual one, and God needed two more years to work on me to get me ready to go on the mission field. I so, know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. In fact, when I counsel young couples that are thinking of going to the mission field, if either spouse is reluctant, I tell them, don't go yet. Yes. Wait until both of you sense in the depths of your hearts that this is what God wants you to do. Then go. That's a great word, George. Yeah. You have some ties here to Memphis and a dear friend of mine, the late Dr. Stephen Olford. I saw that uh, you have taught there at the Stephen Olford Center That's for Biblical Preaching. Now, when did you first meet Dr. Olford and how did how, what kind of relationship did you have with him? I can't really remember the first time we met, but I think it was probably at Columbia Bible College because he served on the board of trustees when I was a student. And so we heard him speak in chapel quite a bit. And I'm sure that's when I first met him. When I lived in Philadelphia, of course, we knew of him as the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. And, right. and we listened to him on the radio and all that. So it was probably back in the early 60s when I first met him. Oh my. Just thank the Lord for his influence on my life. And like you said, I did teach at the Olford Center. And then his family established a chair at Columbia International University, the Stephen Olford Chair for Biblical Preaching. And I occupied that chair for a number of years as a professor of preaching. Oh, I love that, Joe. I love that. Well, you know, I sat down in his study one time and he shared with me, of course, growing up in, in Africa on the mission field as yeah. a missionary child. And he had some incredible adventures. That, yes, he did. I'm sure I know you've heard those stories. Yes. And then the late Mrs. Heather Olford, too. 
you. Yes. Uh, both of them have been on this program with me. And matter of fact, just a couple of months prior to Miss Heather passing away, mm. she had written a book about her life and being married to Dr. Olford and meeting C.S. Lewis and, you know, a lot of other things there in that book. We did that interview and about two or three months after that, she went on to be with Jesus. Well, I'll tell you, one of the greatest compliments I ever received was from Heather Olford after Stephen had died and I came to Memphis and did a series of lectures at First Eban and also at Crichton College. And she came and she said, I haven't heard preaching like that since Stephen died. (laughs) And that was the greatest compliment I could ever get. Oh, that's (laughs) awesome, George. I love that. And I'll tell you what, you do have a gift of preaching. I've watched some of your video preaching at university to the chapel. I mean, I know you really laid it out to those students. And I I love to hear you preach and especially Mm. preach on Jesus like you did so wonderfully. Well, you've traveled to 83 (laughs) countries. What amazes you most, George, about the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ in these various locations where you travel? It's so different there than it is here. Um, We take Christianity for granted here, although that's uh, starting to diminish, of course. But we take Christianity for granted here. And in many other countries, it's, it's not looked on with favor. And so somebody, for somebody to step up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, they often have to count a big cost. Well, you and your wife, Annette, and the four children, you spent about 13 years, as you mentioned, uh, planning churches in Italy. We did. Now, what were some of the biggest challenges to church planning during that time? Yeah. Well, you know, most people think of Italy as a Roman Catholic country, which it is, and everybody in Italy is Roman Catholic. I mean, when you're born, you're taken to the Catholic Church and baptized into the church and so forth. So everybody's Catholic in name, but not really in conviction. Yes. We discovered that the Italian people were basically atheistic and materialistic, and those are the greatest obstacles that we had to overcome. Catholicism definitely was named as something that people didn't want to leave. They'd say, oh, I'm a Catholic. And we'd say, listen, it doesn't matter whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic. The question is whether you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And so we just concentrated on preaching Christ, but it was not easy. It wasn't hard to live there. I mean, Italy is a beautiful country. Look at all the people that go there for vacation. (laughs) But it was difficult to minister there spiritually because there was great opposition to the gospel, mainly through atheism and materialism. Yes. Did the history of the early church in Rome and the investment of the Apostle Paul that contributed to train church leaders and Christians influence how you sought to deliver the gospel to a new generation of Italy? Yeah, well, Italy, when we went there, of course, we went there in the early 70s. It was totally different than when the Apostle Paul was there. So it's almost hard to compare the two, you know. But and, knowing that history, though. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, yeah yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes. And we certainly referred to that because the Bible refers to that. Yes. And so one of the things that people in the West, especially here in North America, don't realize is that the counter-reformation in Southern Europe basically wiped Christianity out and kept people from the gospel. And so Northern Europe benefited so much more from the Reformation than Latin Europe or Southern Europe. How hungry did you find people of Italy to know God beyond just religious orthodoxy? The older people, it was harder to minister to them because they were very set in their ways and so forth. And we did preach the gospel to everybody because everybody needs Jesus. But we uh, really concentrated more on younger people, young couples and so forth. And we found when we spent time with them that they really were in the depths of their heart, hungry for truth, hungry for reality. And so in our experience in Italy, we had to get somebody to agree 
to study God's Word with us on a weekly basis, usually an hour, an hour and a half, for two years before they would come to faith in Christ. So it wasn't like going to somebody and say, hey, let me tell you the four spiritual laws, or let me tell you the gospel, and they'd say, oh, that makes sense. I'm going to bow my heart and head and receive Jesus. No, we had to re- we had to go back to Genesis, and we had to go back to creation, and we had to go back to the foundations of Christ's sacrifice yes. on the cross. But when people were willing to study God's Word with us with an open heart, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. We saw people come to Christ, but oh. it didn't usually happen immediately. Right, like right. I said, yes. a minimum of two years yes. and sometimes much longer. Oh, George, I love that, too. And I'm glad you pointed it out, because back in college, I spent some time in Europe, primarily in Austria, traveling, which is also a Roman Catholic predominant country. And I was with the Operation Mobilization. I was yeah. on a traveling evangelism team. Oftentimes when I would, you know, during, we did concerts, I was with a music group, but sometimes we would share testimonies. And if I reference scripture and quote it Bible, afterwards, we spent most of our time ministering, not during the music, but afterwards when people wanted to come up and meet us, we drink tea and just, you know, fellowship and spend time together. And the thing that always amazed me, and I should, it shouldn't amaze me, but the times that people came up and they said, you speak with authority. Mm. I've never heard authority. And many of these people had grown up in the Catholic Church who had become atheists, mm. but they Correct. heard something. It was God's word. Mm. Amen. Right? That's right. And that was the authority. That's right. You know, we lived in central Italy for the first four years while we went to university and studied the language. And I started a Bible study in our neighborhood and people started coming and they were all Roman Catholic. And so the priest in the area decided to start a Bible study too. And the people coming to the study I was leading said, well, why don't we go and join the priest study just one time? So we went there and everybody at the study looked at us strange because we all had Bibles. And they said, what are you carrying Bibles for? And we said, well, isn't this a Bible study? And they said, yes, but only the priest is the one that can have a Bible. The rest of us just have to accept whatever he says. And so they were amazed that we had Bibles of our own and that everybody in our study was actually reading the Bible. That's great. I know it's been some time since you served on a regular basis there in Italy, you said 1970s. Jonathan Gilmore, who was born to British missionary parents, grew up in Italy. He now lives in Palermo? That's right. Uh, Italy. I'm not, my yeah. Italian's not too no, good. No, that's good. And uh, he uh, also planted a church there called Life Hope Church mm. and wrote an article, George, back in March of 2020 that's entitled, Will Everything Be Okay in Italy? And he writes, hospitals are at breaking point or beyond, especially in northern Italy regions. Coffins are piling up and many deceased are dying alone. Infections are high and show no signs of slowing. All Italy is on lockdown and soldiers are called on to ensure people respect the stringent measures. This is not merely an economic disaster. For some, their very survival is uncertain. Migrants so with no daily income, savings, or food, okay isn't even recognizable in my country right now. A few weeks ago, something distant suddenly came upon us unsuspecting Italians. Several factors made this pandemic harder for us. The coronavirus was initially minimized. Oh, it's just a flu or it's the second oldest population in the world. The increasingly grave situation was compounded by panic travel from affected areas in the north to other parts of Italy. And we're talking about the coronavirus, obviously. Right. I know. Do you know of any God-sized stories? I'm not sure you still have relationships with those in Italy through that, because what I heard on the news when this thing broke out first, George, this was this was destroying Italy. It was horrible. It was horrible, especially in the north. And um, I just have to take my hat off to Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse, because they went into the very heart of the coronavirus area, where people were dying, doctors were dying, priests were dying. Uh, it was just terrible. And they set up a hospital there, and people from here in North America went and risked their lives to share the medical help and to share the gospel. I know one story, and that is that they had to hire 15 uh, Italian students as translators 
because the people in the hospital only spoke English, and half of those students came to Christ oh. as a result of their contact with the Samaritan's Purse people that came there. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, that is so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Again, showing you how God can work in desperate times. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I and I know I know J.D. Gilmore very oh, well. Do you we really? are very good friends, and he is in Palermo, and we are in touch with each other regularly, <laughs> and I just thank the Lord for him and his wife. His wife and my wife have the same first name. Oh, I noticed that, too, when I <laughs> yeah. read the article. But I just picked that up, and I thought, this is applicable, especially knowing the times we're living now yes. and watching God work, because the gospel message doesn't stop when times are desperate. That's when the gospel message is the brightest, right? Absolutely. I agree. In John 17, 1, 3 is often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, George, you and I both know there are groups of people throughout the world that make claims knowing the way to God and for the life to come, how to get there. Would you speak for a moment into Jesus' statement here in John 17 about the real definition of eternal life, what he mm. says, to know the only true God and mm. Jesus Christ whom he had sent? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that just squares with what the rest of Scripture teaches. Jesus said to Thomas in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter, speaking to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, referring to Jesus. So Jesus was just confirming in his prayer to the Father that there is only one way to heaven, that there is only one true God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the manifestation of that in human flesh, and he's the only way to heaven. And um, and there's a lot of people claiming to be Christians today who are starting to doubt that. And the power of the gospel loses its power totally if we don't insist on the exclusiveness of the Christian gospel and the uniqueness of Christ. Yes. Oh, it's well spoken there, George. Well, are you encouraged or discouraged by the way that today's church is responding to the mandate to make disciples of all nations? Uh, I'm not real encouraged, actually. Uh, I'm a Westerner. I live here in North America. Um, there's a minuscule uh, emphasis on world missions in the majority of Bible-believing churches here. Let's just talk about Bible-believing churches, not other churches that call themselves Christians, but maybe really don't believe the word, but Bible-believing evangelical churches, very little emphasis on world missions to the extent that there should be. I'm a very good friend of Jerry Rankin, who was the head of the IMB, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. I've met Jerry multiple times. Right, yeah, and great guy. just a wonderful brother. Yeah. And uh, and I was saying to him, Jerry, I said, so awesome that you guys have 6,000 missionaries with the IMB. And he said, George, that's paltry. He said, we have 40,000 Southern Baptist churches in North America. If every church would just give one son or daughter to the mission field, we'd have 40,000 missionaries, not six. Wow. Of course, we don't want to just point fingers at the Southern Baptists. No, no. <laughs> no, I mean, they've done a really good job. So the, the story in other other denominations is often worse. And uh, we really need, I, I think, Byron, personally, that God's servants, pastors, need to preach missions to Christians as much as we need to preach the gospel to the lost. Well, are, are we making a distinction between the word 
word missions and evangelism. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you asked me that. And that, that I have my own definition, so I'll give it to you. <laughs> uh, evangelism is reaching people who don't believe in Jesus. Missions is reaching people who don't know there's a Jesus to believe in. And as we sit here today in 2023, there are three billion people on planet Earth who are still waiting to hear about Jesus for the first time. These are not people that don't believe in Jesus. These are people who don't know there's a Jesus to believe in. That's the missionary mandate. Well, what's what's the roadblock keeping the church from being effective to making more disciples? Well, think? I think there's there's quite a few reasons. I think the greatest reason that missionaries are not going to the extent they should be going to the unreached peoples of the world is that we are not praying and asking God to do that because Jesus said that's the solution. Yes. He said the harvest is plentiful. In other words, the need is huge. He said the workers are few. Therefore, he said, pray. He didn't say, therefore, everybody go. He didn't say, therefore, give more money, even though we do need people to go and we do need people to give more money. He said, therefore, pray. And when we pray and, and obey what he says, then workers will go out to the to the unreached and to the lost. And I think you just answered my next question, George, is how does one prepare their heart and life to serve the Lord in a career missionary capacity? You just started right there, prayer. Yeah, absolutely. It starts. God called me to the mission field in the middle of a prayer meeting. And, <laughs> and I'm so, so glad. Uh, that I got involved in praying for world missions. And it, it was as I was praying that the Lord put his hand on me and said, I want you to go. So I'm I'm all for uh, a greater concentration of prayer for world missions. And, uh, and it's because Jesus said it. And interestingly, in Matthew 9, where he says that, you know, there's in the Greek New Testament, there's no chapter division between chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Matthew. They're all one passage. And at the beginning of chapter 10, it says that the very people who pray were the ones that the Lord pressed into service. So I tell people, be careful about praying for world missions because the Lord may come to you and tap you on the shoulder and say, I want you to be the answer to your prayer. Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the things my wife wanted to be a missionary, even as a small girl, she grew up in a little Bible church, had missionaries quite often. She heard stories, but there was a place she didn't really want to go, and that was Africa. Mm. And she said, Lord, I'll go anywhere except Africa. <laughs> but then, as I told you about that prayer time, God said, I'll go anywhere, including Africa. Mm, praise the Lord. And when you, when God opens your heart and shows you that, mm. and then what was funny is when the Transworld Radio office called us and wanted to know where our applications were, they said, hey, we have an assignment for your husband in Swaziland. Oh. <laughs> so we were initially heading to Africa. And then after, really, we raised all of our support going that direction. Mm. Ten months into raising our support, they called us to the home office. They said, we have a new assignment for you. We want you to go to Guam. <laughs> oh, interesting. And my wife, she was like floating on clouds. She was ready to go to Africa. Yeah. We thought we were going. Mm-hmm. I'll get, you know, we knew we both were going to go there until the Lord changed the direction. And she said, I get to go to Guam instead of Africa. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and we would have gone. Yeah. We wanted to serve the Lord. Again, I think it has to do with hearing God's voice mm-hmm. and being obedient. Right, yeah. George? Absolutely. Can I, can I share with you one statistic? You talked about your wife as a little girl being exposed to missionaries and so forth. We took a poll. We, the evangelical church, took a poll of a thousand missionaries around the world, evangelical missionaries. And one of the questions on the poll was, how old were you when you knew for sure that God was calling you to be a missionary? And 75% said it was before they were 12 years of age. Wow. 
Wow. So I think it's very important to preach the message of world missions to children. Yes. Just like it's important to preach the gospel to children <laughs> because it's it's clear to them and uh, their hearts aren't cluttered with all the things in our adult lives. And so they can be open to the Lord for salvation and for world missions. Oh, that's great. Well, George, what are some lessons as a seasoned missionary that you've discovered about ministry that would have helped you greatly on the front end of starting out as a missionary? I'll tell you some of the things that we did do and that were very, very important. And I highly recommend this to other missionaries uh, that are going. Uh, The first thing is we made sure we got the language really well. So in our case, what we did was we enrolled in an Italian university. And we took university courses, all in Italian. We did not speak Italian. Our teachers did not speak English. We jumped in the deep end of the pool and just had to swim. And at the beginning, it was very difficult. But we continued that, and it was so important. People would remark to us how well we spoke the Italian language, and they would trust in us was greater when they saw that we really put the effort into learning their language well. So that's one thing. But along with that is learning the culture. And that's another reason why we went to university, because we studied Italian art. We studied We studied Italian history. We studied Italian literature. We wanted to know what was in the psyche, in the background, in the history of the Italian people. And knowing that made it much more effective when we met with them and talked with them and shared the gospel with them. So those are two things that I highly recommend, getting the language well. And that should be determined not by how long you study, but by how proficient you become. See, because some missionaries say, well, I did my year language study. I'm all done. And I'll say, no, that's not the question. Not how long did you study? How well did you learn it? And if they learn it well, then I think they're going to be much more effective. Well, final question for you. I'm sure you ate a lot of really good pasta over the years being yes, in Italy. And you don't look like, you know, you look like you're, you're not a pasta eater. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do eat pasta. My wife learned to cook um, Italian, and she does often, and uh, and I love Italian food. But I do think we need to be good stewards of our health and yes. so forth. So I'm a walker. I've actually walked over five miles today already. Really? And, and I'm 78 years old, and I'm thankful that I can do that. And so I walk every day and it's and it's just been really good for my body and for my heart and I'm just thankful that I can do it. I love it. So as we wrap up, if somebody wanted to connect with you, do you have a website or an email address? Or I, I do have an email address and I don't mind giving it to you. It's, it's george.w.murray45 at gmail.com. I don't have a website. I don't have a blog. I've never written a book. Well, I've, I've written a couple things that have been published, but nothing to make me famous. <laughs> and uh, But I do love to preach God's word and and I don't even have a shingle out, Byron. I just It's just word of mouth. People say, we heard about you. Would you come and speak at our conference, our church? And I'm happy to do that. And I was happy to preach in three different churches in Memphis yesterday. What's the thing you like best about Ronnie Stevens? Oh, my goodness. Uh, have we got another half hour? <laughs> Ronnie is original. And, um, you know, all of us are, of course, but some of us are more original than others. And Ronnie, there's just one Ronnie Stevens. His, his passionate love for the Lord. and for the souls of men and women and for discipling and training young people to serve the Lord. Those are some of the things that come to mind when I think of Ronnie. And his preaching of God's Word. When I was the president of CIU, I had Ronnie come and do a whole week of preaching to our
our students. It was one of the best weeks we ever had. <laughs> of course, Ronnie's a missionary himself. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And he and I did things in Eastern Europe together. So that's another reason why I just love him. That's beautiful. Well, Dr. George Murray, God bless you, my dear brother. Thank you for what you faithfully allowed Christ to do in and through you all these years. And your wife, Annette, in ministry, serving Christ for his glory, for his kingdom. Amen. Thanks for stopping by on Bot Radio Network. My pleasure. God bless you. <laughs> well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Mid-South Viewpoint. The show is archived for on-demand listening on our website at botradionetwork.com or via your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned to Bot Radio Network to fill your day with God's Word.